Hello, I'm Juliet Jakes, welcoming you back to the Sweet 212 Sessions. As those of you who've listened to previous episodes will know, our plan to relaunch Sweet 212 as a fortnightly show with alternating free and subscriber-only episodes were put on hold by the coronavirus epidemic, which has brought much of the United Kingdom's cultural life to a standstill. So instead, I'm recording a series of interviews with contemporary artists, writers, filmmakers and others about their work, conducted via Skype, so apologies in advance for the diminished audio quality, and more spontaneous than our usual output. The idea is to give a snapshot of the arts in the United Kingdom and beyond in the 21st century through individual conversations with people about their work, seeing which political concerns engage them and how the socio-economic conditions of the time have affected their practices. All of these will be available for free via SoundCloud, but I would still encourage you to subscribe at patreon.com slash sweet212 as they still take time to plan and record. You can also make a one-off donation at donorbox.org slash sweet-212. Today I'm talking to writer and scholar Mackenzie Walk, as well as Reverse Cowgirl, recently published by Semiotext, Mackenzie Walk began her literary and academic career in Australia during the 1990s and is the author of numerous books, including The Influential Hacker Manifesto in 2004 and Gamer Theory in 2007. She has also published two books about the situations international through Verso, The Beach Beneath the Street in 2011 and The Spectacle of Disintegration in 2013. Since then, she's issued three more texts through Verso, including Molecular Red, Theory for the Anthropocene in 2015, and then last year, Capital is Dead, Is This Something Worse? The emails she exchanged with the writer Kathy Acker in the 1990s were published as I'm Very Into You in 2015. She also teaches at the Eugene Lang College in New York. Mackenzie, welcome to Suite 212. Thank you for having me. Ah, it's a pleasure. We actually recorded this interview before for a recent piece published by Freeze, but we're doing it again, a more extended version of the interview, because, you know, I thought there was an awful lot that we covered that we weren't able to talk about for Freeze. So I'd like to go back into it. It's a long-term concern of mine about how in the UK and the US, trans and non-binary people have struggled to find effective language and useful forms to express themselves in the face of widespread transphobia in the media, in politics and the wider world. I covered this a lot in my recent PhD, how during the second half of the 20th century, academics, activists and writers gradually shifted their focus from memoirs that would explain transsexual living towards more theoretical texts that tended to use lots of personal material but broke with the autobiographical form. Following Sandy Stone's imperative expressed in her influential 1987 text, The Empire Strikes Back, the post-transsexual manifesto, for such writers to create new genres in order to explore new genders. And, you know, over the last 20 years or so, this subculture has blossomed into a vibrant world of novels, short stories, poetry, essays, journalism, and a whole host of other texts that escape categorization, much like Reverse Cowgirl, which I mentioned in the intro. I'm just going to introduce Reverse Cowgirl by reading the blurb on the back of the book. It says, Travelling from Sydney in the 1980s to New York today, Reverse Cowgirl is a comedy of errors, chronicling the author's failed attempts at being gay and at being straight across the shifting political and media landscapes of the late 20th century. Finding that the established narratives of being transgender don't seem to apply to them, Walk borrows from the genres of autofiction, fictocriticism, 
and new narrative to create a writing practice that can discover the form of a life outside of existing accounts of trans experience and autoethnography of the opacity of the self. So you talk there, or you know, you were quoted there as talking about the established narratives of being transgender not being not applying to you. I think every trans person feels like that. I certainly have. I wonder if you could just talk a bit more about this and how you've captured it in the writing. The blurb is a little bit hyperbolic. You know, it's a little bit punk rock in terms of, you know, I will, I will have nothing to do with all of the my predecessors, which is, hey, you write a back cover blurb. That's not the reality. The sense more the point is how much it draws on work that did offer hints about what you could do. It's true that I read Conundrum by Jan Morris at an impressionable age. I really didn't find myself in that at all. A couple of Australian trans books that were sort of similar in form. And I was so fascinated by that literature, but never really found myself in it. Yeah, there was a sense that certain kinds of literature didn't work, but some did. Like I really found certain kinds of queer, but not trans writing, really helpful. So, I mean, at least New Narrative gets name checked in that list. So I was very interested in uh, Robert Gluck and Bruce Boone and people like that writing in San Francisco uh, in the late 20th century. So there, there were like little hints of things that seemed possible. But I think the takeaway was that there's maybe limits to the kinds of everyday life that the standard form of autobiography, memoir, all the genres of the novel could actually accommodate without doing a certain amount of violence to them. So yes, I mean, trans people can write the novel. I'm, I'm definitely not saying that they can't. But I think it takes a hell of a lot of thought to do that. Uh, without sort of shaving off the edges of that life that don't fit what that particular form is then meant to be doing. Yeah, so I felt like I had to kind of go elsewhere. That's part of it. The other part is what kinds of trans experience one finds and which ones were things that people didn't really talk about. I felt like there were certain kinds of pre-trans sexuality that didn't really have space in the literature and I wanted to sort of open that up a little bit and put my weirdo self into it. You, you write the book that you can't find on the shelf kind of thing, and that's what I couldn't find. That's true for me as well. Um, you mentioned Conundrum by Jan Morris, and of course I wrote my transition blog for The Guardian in 2010-15 and then my own memoir in 2015 because I couldn't find the book I wanted on the shelf about trans life in the UK. And when I was working for the NHS, I found that when I started transitioning, people there would ask me if I'd read Conundrum by Jan Morris. And I was like, well, it's several years older than I am. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, again, I, I read that too, and it didn't feel that relevant. Yeah. You're quite engaged with contemporary trans voices in the arts and in writing. And someone you do quote in the book is the artist and writer Misha Cardenas. And there's a nice line that you quote where she writes, I've been going through a personal process of transitioning as a transgender person. So in the early stages of writing, I had questions like, where does this desire to be female come from? I began to feel like this was an unanswerable question. Yet I still have a powerful desire to have a more female body. It interrupts my consciousness during the day, at the dog park, at school, sometimes when I see an attractive woman. I find the search for its origin or cause opens up an aporia, the answer unavailable to my conscious logical thought processes. You write after that, reverse cowgirl made sense to me, finally, as a sort of autofiction account of someone who was trans all along and didn't know it yet. 
In this case, even the writer didn't know the shape of the web she made. I think that's really interesting. You write about dissociation, a feeling of not existing in the text. And I wondered if we could talk a bit more about about that and why that sensation comes into the text so much. I'm not even sure if that word appears in the book, but it kind of occurred to me later that's the main topic of the entire thing. Dissociation as a strategy for dealing with a dysphoria without even acknowledging it. And also to do with like the book opens with the death of my mother when I was six. And what actually, now that I look back on it, I'm always resistant to putting things in clinical categories, but it's like, oh, I'm describing the actual first moment I dissociated, which is when I was six. And my father told me that my mother had died and, and the description of it, I now look at it and go, oh, honey, you were so dissociated that happened. And you spent the rest of your life tapping into that state. As I have done since uh, the corona lockdown, you know, I just immediately switched into this state of it's not happening to me. I'm observing this happened to somebody else. The world where it's happening isn't real. Let me just get out my laptop and write a whole bunch of stuff about something else altogether. So, yeah, it just struck me that it's probably a really common trans experience, right? But then part of me was like, oh, maybe there's a asset. You can use it as an asset. It's a thing you can actually use in lots of ways as well. I mean, that writing is the thing I ended up doing when I was dissociated. It ended up being a thing that made the rest of my life possible. You know, it's like, oh, I can actually enter that, that space. But I don't want to do it anymore in quite the same way. And I, I don't want to be absent from my own body in the way that I was. Rather than treat the clinical categories as things that are wrong with you that need to be fixed always sometimes they are of course but as tendencies that are also where creativity and, and any kind of aesthetic life also comes from you know like from those states you know, like from sort of diverging from the consensus hallucination to something else even if it's only into another hallucination so yeah while you're really acknowledging that some people struggle with these things in ways that are much much more serious uh, and i don't want to deny that but yeah i think there's that you can used association as well struck me as one of the things that was going on and it struck me that the thing about memoir autobiography is they're often about the truth of the self and as if that's the, the arc is where you arrive at that at the end of the story and i didn't want to do that so it's all about not knowing who the hell i was and spoiler alert you know the transition happens you know 90 percent of the way through the book or begins to happen but then there's a much more naive not knowing who she is character who appears at the end and is kind of like you know, gaily sort of entering the world, you know, and I hope in a sort of naively funny way, whereas the, the first half is a you know, comedy of errors kind of a thing. The first half of the book, there are lots of references to punk and disco being the cultural currents that were around you at the time. You know, you sort of note a lot of the queer elements of disco, but something that's always interested me is that punk had an awful lot of queer elements that I think have been airbrushed out of a lot of the histories of punk, you know, say for a little enclave of the New York Dolls being a predecessor and then maybe Jane County, one or two others. I don't know if this sort of queer side of punk was particularly visible in Australia where you're growing up, but I wondered how much that formed part of the narrative of the book and how much that queer punk subculture was available to you at the time. In a sort of explicitly punk rock context, not a lot. Where it was much more visible was in the sort of quote-unquote new wave offshoot of that. So like Soft Cell sort of landed as like an obviously queer as fuck kind of sound and, and ethos. And even if it wasn't explicitly so, you know, like the whole kind of human league 
kind of sound. You could kind of like imagine something that was much more about almost a kind of slight twist on the possibility of what appearances could be, I think. It's not quite camp. There's a way in which punk took away certain aspects of camp and accelerated certain others. You sort of came back. I didn't know who Jack Smith was at the time, but in retrospect, oh, Jack Smith is already that like super punk version of camp. And I found my way to that and to, you know, the Warhol trans superstars, for example, via that electronic sound that was an offshoot of punk. Fuck the buying a guitar thing. Why even bother? Like, you know, get this newly manufactured cheap box and make some sounds with it kind of thing. Like that seemed appropriate. Uh, and there is some really interesting convergence, I think particularly for trans women with certain kinds of electronic music making to do with your crafting the body of the sound in the way that you're attempting to craft your body. There's a way in which those things fit together. So those things started to make sense to me. Uh, as a as a young person, even though I didn't quite know it was was trans. This was I was trying to figure out because my own dysphoria was really really obtuse. Like I didn't come to a a point like I couldn't physically identify sites in my body where it happened because it was mostly emotional. I just felt like the emotional life of being a man was that was completely alienating me from who I needed to be. Yeah, that was my experience of it as well. And yeah, something I've written about. We've talked a bit about older trans memoirs and how they didn't really speak that much to either of us and I think something that both of us have noted and both of us have written about is the way that older trans memoirs you know often elided sex and sexuality Kate Bornstein being a notable exception in the 90s through to the present in reverse Calgary you write about sex quite a lot and I, I wanted to ask, like, why why write about sex so much? You know, did it open up new ways for you to think about gender in the writing? There was more contemporary writing that was really helpful to me, including your book, because I, you know, I want to go on record and, and saying the trans and memoir was like personally extremely helpful for me, even though your experience was really quite different. But I just sort of felt, oh, if this experience is possible, then mine is also, even though it's not the same thing, right? So it's sort of sometimes you don't have to find yourself in the book, you have to find the possibility of yourself which I really did there. So thank you for that. You're welcome. The thing that really finally did it for me was reading uh, Tori Peters. And Tori had, a, like, again, different but relatable experience uh, having been a cross-dresser. And like that's one of the categories of, you know, the sort of the most shameful, abject version of pre-trans life is in, in terms of the narratives that are told about it. And also one that's sort of forbidden. It's like the traditional narrative for a long time was you can't be a real trans woman if that's what you're doing because it's basically just a king fetish thing that you're into there. But I felt like through gender euphoria, through sex and drugs and cross-dressing all at the same time, I kind of touched the thing I needed to be and sort of finding like a textual resonance of that, which came after I decided I needed to do it, but really confirmed for me. The validity of that experience was Tori Peters' Slamming Boutique and a little bit less The Masker. Tori was in, uh, not Tori, the characters in the books, let's say, are involved in a public cross-dressing scene and I wasn't. And I had supportive partners and those characters don't. But I kind of felt like, oh, yeah, like this, this could be, to use the word, right, this could be valid. So, yeah, that was really helpful. And I thought, ah, oh, okay, well, the key to it, to me, it was always sexuality, so let's write that. But then also there's comedy in that, I think, as well. Because this is a fairly common experience of trying to be gay when you're really trans and trying to be straight when you're really trans and none of those things really quite working and not knowing why. Uh, so I, I felt like there was not necessarily funny ha-ha, but comedic sense of those eras. So that I, that I felt like writing. 
also feel like, why is anybody going to read this essentially theory-oriented book about little old me? I better put some porn in it. Every academic I know, after they get tenure and stuff, is like, I will now write my novel. It's like, you know, novel writing is a fucking art that you need to hone for a lifetime to be any good at it, right? They're never, they're never any good. But I'm like, oh, I, could, I could probably just manage genre fiction, and the genre I can do is porn. Those are the first bits to be successfully written. Uh, and I wrote all the porn bits back-to-back in uh, a hotel room in Seoul, Korea, on two junkets in two successive years. I was supposed to be on tour buses going to see art and stuff, and I, I took days off and just sat in the hotel room and I literally knocked those out. Uh, and then the books, but you know, finally successfully built after ten years of struggling with it around those books. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Tori Peters there, and I like the use of quotes in the book. You draw together this canon of interesting experimental queer writers and filmmakers. For example, Pier Paolo Pasolini, the bisexual surrealist author Rene Crevel, Jean Genet, Georges Bataille, and then some new queer and trans writers, for example, Juliana Huxtable, Hugh Lemmy, Maggie Nelson, Paul B. Preciado, and Sarah Shulman. I picked out one quote that I wanted to ask you a bit more about, which is from Chris Krause, who, of course, works at Semiotics, who published the book. So you have some exchanges with her about the book, which are then included in the book. And the quote you used from her says, My entire state of being's changed because I've become my sexuality, female, straight, wanting to love men, be fucked. Is there a way of living with this like a gay person proudly? Yeah, it's the shared ethos of bottom culture is like one of the things that's going on in that. Chris was really helpful in in a lot of ways. Uh, She asked me to write the afterword to her novel Torpor when it got reissued. And so I kind of did actual scholarship on her writing. Like I read all of it and tried to figure out the, the structures and rhetorical moves in it. And it struck me that Chris had built on certain theories of subjectivity that's going on in like the theory world, but also on things like new narrative, which had read that stuff and then gone, well, what about everyday life? How are we, how are we supposed to live? How are we supposed to live this philosophy was sort of what was going on in that moment. I didn't get, end up name-checking everybody I wanted to but because there's sort of like the quotes had to fit. But there is a sort of like showing what it's made of, showing how the sausage is made. Like it's made out of reading these texts. So like I brought them in. And it's also a bit like what my Twitter feed looks like. So I follow a lot of writers and scholars who will like picture quote the favourite paragraph of whatever they're just reading, you know. So I'm like scrolling through Twitter and there's like, oh, there's a whole quote from Bataille that I hadn't read in 20 years. That's really cool. Uh, I look it up and find the context and put it in my text. So, yeah, I wanted that sort of 21st century reading experience as one level of it. And then the the thing we were so keen on doing in the post-structural 80s is show the process. And then, yeah, who were the authors that were enabling them? And Chris was for me in a lot of ways. I mean, I don't necessarily love everything about all of the writers that are quoted. A lot of trans people are very critical of Maggie Nelson, and I kind of buy that critique. I just think I learned so much and straight up stole things from how Maggie does things that it was worth. And there's a whole like anal sex thing that's like just hinted at in Argonauts, and I just wanted to like extract that little bit and sort of add that, like a bowerbird, you know, kind of like adding the shiny blue things to my to my nest. Something that interests me is there's a part of the book where you express a problem with the couple as a form, you know, the romantic couple as a, as a form. And 
this struck me as being quite interesting. I wondered if it tied into the problems you have with memoir as a form. I was just advising a student about this who's trying to start a, a book with struggles, you know, dating somebody and it ends with them successfully being in love. This just doesn't work as literature. I'm really happy for you personally that, you know, you're in love with this person and your, your domestic situation is great. But you're in the depths of the romantic illusion and seeing nothing of interest to the reader. So I'm kind of like, <laughs> this will be great when you break up and you have this other perspective, but I don't want that to happen to you because I'm fond of you as a human. And so there's a way in which it's, it's after that you perceive the structure of the couple forms. So the, the thing that's mostly missing from reverse cowgirl is the fact that I've been married to the same person for 20 years. And I can't write that because I'm inside it. And it's actually going pretty well at the moment. Kristen, I love you. I hope you listen to this sometime. But, I, you know, I can't, you know, it's not something you have access to in the same way. So I felt like I could honorably write about people that I've been with who are still alive because I'm reconciled to the encounter and that it didn't work and my own responsibility for it. So you can say something about that. But yeah, there's topics I can't really touch. But yeah, there's, there's a way in which the arc of particularly the novel uh, in its classic form is structured around marriage, yeah? So things like cheating are a huge deal because there's a sense of ownership and property in the couple forms. So cheating is like theft. There's always the arc of, you know, like in a Jane Austen where you have to get married to secure the property, right? Like marriage is always connected to property. That's the other problem with cheating is not so much the emotional side of it, but resources are being diverted. So it's like, what are forms for other lives in that? And there's, there is a model in things like New Narrative, which is writing for gay men, or the French version of autofiction. Like Guillaume Dastan was extremely helpful for me. And I was like, oh, that's, it's not the novel, it's fiction in some sense, but it's also like documentary. Um, you probably did go out and fuck all these guys and have these shitty roommates in probably this order. And it's like, oh, that's a different life. But none of this, gay men's lives aren't trans lives. It's even lesbian writing is not trans women's lives either. There are things I find useful in it. The accounts of sexuality just don't work. So could we borrow from these other others to sort of find the beginnings of how you might start to write about those things? And the thing I found most useful recently is Paul Teen Hardscape's book. Do you know this one, Second Infexile? No, I don't. I taught it when I'm like, oh, this has really got some things going on, particularly about talking about relations, but it's T for T. It's, it's all about relations among trans women. And I thought, oh, and it's, it's flipped into a sort of science fiction anime type genre. It's very Burroughs Ballard, P.K. Dick. Uh, and it's like, well, I won't go there, but I know that writing and I know how you repurpose that to find ways to talk about how trans women particularly relate to each other. So, yeah, it's a question of what can you borrow from different genres to find forms for the things that are specific about trans lives without making us be complete outsiders all the time, too, because our experience overlaps with regular people is because we are regular people. I mean, you mentioned Guillaume de Stan there, and I wondered if AIDS memoirs or fiction about AIDS were an influence on you. I mean, AIDS does come up in the, the text because it, the AIDS epidemic happens at the time of writing. Eric Michaels is the one that I... Which is personal to me. I knew Eric very slightly. I didn't know him well. Eric was a huge influence in the sort of cultural studies theory world in Australia. Yeah, so I quote, I think maybe once or twice from Eric. I didn't systematically study it as, as a genre. You know, it's partly got to do with 
shameful side of, you know, I was one of those people who had had to get tested for HIV when no one even knew what it was and it was a death sentence. And I just remember waiting out those those tests that happened twice. And I kind of fled in terror from gay life at that point. And I haven't really accounted for that in this book. I think that's a topic really I'm so much more comfortable with myself and maybe I can revisit that. Uh, so people around me died. So, yeah, I read the memoirs that were connected to me in some way, but I didn't systematically read all this literature because I, I feel, you know, frankly, guilt and shame about how tangentially I was involved in that world. Other side of that is that it turned out I wasn't really a gay man. Like, I thought I was bi, probably am in some sense, but in a way that I didn't really understand. So I've had to untangle some, some strands of that. And I think there's a bit about uh, the film of Stephen Cummings, who I knew very well. What's it called? Resonance is the film. I think that got in there. Beautiful work. Like, lovely, lovely man who's gone for my life and is just one of many. Something that, that's interested me lately is, and something that comes up in the book, is this idea of human beings being defined by their desires, not just their sexual desires, but to some extent their sexual desires. And this is something that's taken to a absurdist and quite comic conclusion by Andrea Long Chu in her recent book Females which you wrote quite an interesting piece about for public seminar so I wonder if you'd like to talk a bit about this idea as it features in Reverse Cowgirl but also as it works in Long Chu's thesis that everyone is female and everyone hates it. Uh, I really enjoyed that book I really do understand why people find it problematic for various reasons but it, it harks back to a kind of high wire act version of writing theory that we used to do in the 80s where you take like a truly ridiculous premise and that's counterintuitive and spin it out as far as you can so that's and she really does write really well as you know as well as just sentences that you can go back and kind of figure out the clockwork of how they function and so on actually has something andrea's maybe a little detached from certain aspects of trans culture like it comes from outside in a way and that was a thing I didn't want to do. I wanted this book to be much more intimately connected to, at least with the parts of it that I knew and could touch. But I related to it also because there's a way in which this book, where it does intersect with Andrew's, is it's not so much trans theory, it's like bottom theory. There's a whole like diagram of subjectivity based on who tops and who bottoms. That, and it's kind of like if hers is, uh, her theory is, you know, desire comes from without. Desire is a thing that, that seizes the subject from without. And that experience is coded as female for her. It's much more literally bottoming is coded as female in, in reverse cowgirl. And I'm aware that that's a rhetorical construct. It's not necessarily true of everybody's experience. It's not meant to be. Like, that's the whole point. To what extent you build, that's what we all do, whether we're aware of it or not, is build entire worldviews out of particular experiences. Our access to the totality is always through the particulars of sensation and experience, you know, like praxis generates language that exceeds the thing that it could, you know, reasonably describe. So, yeah, I think that was why I like females more than other people did. I kind of see the machinery of it and the tactics and that it comes out of, you know, this sort of complete theory world that I slightly was engaged in. I it comes more out of a high theory universe that I'm just, I don't have the credentials, credentials ever to have been in. Uh, I'm much, was much more interested in like a low theory version of this. So 
you know, self-described nasty street queens who'd like thrust photocopies of Foucault in your hand and say, this is how we fight the struggle. That was more the version of theory that appealed to me. Can we talk a bit more about your conception of low theory and, and what that means? You know, I was taught the classics of Marxism uh, in party school. And so there was uh, theory was oriented not to passing exams at all. It was oriented to, you know, in that case, late movement activism. And I think I encountered early versions of yeah, things like Foucault around people who were interested in uh, anti-psychiatry, for example, at a time when homosexuality was heavily under the thumb of a sort of psychiatric institution. So that's why they were reading Foucault. Uh, that made sense to me. And so, yeah, and then they're also, how do you make certain kinds of art requires a kind of conceptual framework, but it's outside of art school or anything like that. It's, it's just you pick books up in order to make the work, in order to live. So, yeah, low theory to me is kind of, and it can take from high theory. It really doesn't, you know, it's more about the practice. So uh, you're reading it kind of on the stoop, having a cigarette, trying to figure out how to live your life and to apply it. But also theory is sometimes generated out of that. That's why, like, the, the situationists, the board was going to lectures by uh, Hippolyte, and we imagine others, oh, and, and Henri Lefebvre. So, you know, it's, it's like literally there's a detournement from the sort of Hegelian Marxism, like into a practice. So, yeah, how do you live without work is situation's whole problem. So, yeah, to me, those things are low theory. Sometimes they get vacuumed into high theory. It's kind of hilarious that you can go to graduate school and read Spinoza and Marx and Nietzsche. Like none of these things are actually philosophy. They're not from the academy at all. And I wanted to return them to a space outside of that. Uh, you know, they're about people trying to live their lives or engage in struggles. So that to me is low theory. It's a term that um, Jack Halberstam also uses, and we probably started using it around the same time. And we both got it from Stuart Hall, who was a great exponent of this. And so I usually credit Jack with the term low theory. My early works, I don't, because I come up with it independently. But I feel like honoring Jack as a kind of co-creator of that. Yeah, and I think there's there's some influence there. You mentioned Guy Debord, and there's an influence there, I think, of the situationist international critique of the separation of politics and aesthetics, right? Yeah. You know, something I learned from um, Severe Lotringer, he was like importing uh, very selected French theory into the Anglosphere, Foucault and Deleuze, particularly Grassari, and then hanging out downtown and going, ah, oh, there's American conceptual art is doing the same things. It's just come at it through finding materials in different places. And so there's genius for seeing how these things are related. Oh, all of these struggles to live. That's, you know, New York downtown in the 70s. This is the same thing French theory is talking about. Let's put the two together. And like, thus a revolution was made. Yeah. Like that semi-text was, Sauvier doesn't like calling it an avant-garde, but it was. Like, that was one of the ones that I grew up on. And then also the appropriation of the same theory into experimental media practice that happened in the 80s, because I was involved in it. Uh, yeah. There's like, how do I live as somebody who doesn't even quite know they're trans? Is that side low theory? But then there's what's, uh, aesthetic, political, everyday life, praxis, having those two dimensions, like the semi-text world, and I'll say like nettime.org was the sort of community I was most involved in that was sort of like net art about that. I'd like to just bring the conversation back to the book a bit more. 
And something I really enjoyed in Verse Cowgirl is in a chapter called Class Analysis, where you talk about going out with a, a gay man and experience these kind of class antagonisms around the ways that men treat women, even when you hadn't transitioned. There's a particularly nice passage that says, I was not supposed to have opinions about things. It was permitted for me to agree with John's opinions or shades thereof. I was expected to smooth out disagreements between John and others. Mostly I just tried to blend in and observe. A closet communist. At some point the men would segregate themselves, usually to talk business or politics. I would be left with the wives. And then you talk about the wives and say that their idea of women's liberation was restricted to their own entry into the upper rungs of the ruling class. So I really like that and it struck a chord with me. But you know, I like the way your communist politics kept coming into the text and that you refuse to detach this trans narrative from wider politics, because I think, like me, you probably got quite frustrated with the way some of the older trans narratives did exactly that. Yeah, and there's sort of a quite conservative version of trans culture that, particularly for trans women, wanting to achieve a certain kind of respectability and to not be part of anything remotely queer, which I totally respect as a, as a life choice. It's just not mine, you know. That's the most heavily fictional part of the book, and it's the name of the character is John, you know, like this is generally like a John as in sex worker talk. And mostly because of the libel laws in Australia are extremely vicious. Truth is no defense. Uh, it's, it's basically 18th century law to protect wealthy and powerful. So it's a sort of composite of a few different people. Most of the experiences in it are mine, but not all of them are. So I've like synthesized. The other thing, and it's a bit about how you end up hanging out with the other fag boys that those gay men you know, you'd also get like put with them and i sort of didn't fit with that but you know sort of i borrowed some of their stories but but it was interesting like like i didn't know i was trans at the time but but you still coded as like one of the girls because you're the one who gets fucked basically like that was the dynamic and you were just there to be decorative like you were the handbag so yeah that put the class bit into it and the way it was an early intimation of what Jasper Puar calls uh, homo-nationalism, you know, these very respectable forms of gay life that really just want access to the same privileges. They're kind of really not interested in homelessness or policing or mass incarceration. Like those things just never get on the agenda. It's just all about can we get married so that we can secure property the way straight people do is basically the, the discourse. One other thing I wanted to pull out from the text is a chapter called You Are Your Attention, a portrait of Mackenzie Watt by the Facebook algorithm. And then there's a list of things. So you reference people like David Bowie, Walter Benjamin, Lana Turner, Justin Vivian Bond. You reference, you know, foodstuffs, hegemony, future society, modernity. So lots of concepts, plenty of items of clothing, especially towards the end of the algorithm it kind of moves through things like contemporary art and photography reading and left-wing politics and global warming through to t-shirts jeans denims hats tights etc and then closes with psychoanalysis gender and social class you're quite active on facebook and twitter and do you think platforms like this help to constitute our identities you know what are the possibilities of this what are the constraints and the pitfalls of it that particular page in the book is the categories that Facebook thinks describe me. So it's like this other algorithmic portrait of me in this sort of like self-portrait that's going on. You can still get that out of the Facebook back end. I'd love to know what it says now and how much that changed. 
Yeah, I had a whole Justin Vivian Bond thing for a while because they were one of the few trans people my age I could kind of locate around the place who were interesting stuff. It's in mostly younger people. You know, I'd kind of like figured it out and, and that was an interest to me. And one of the places I found that was Twitter and, and it's like just it's one of my daily joys is a certain little corner of trans Twitter where having quite vigorously excluded people who want to argue about certain things. It's just people whose raison d'etre to be there is basically to amuse each other uh, with in-jokes, you know, and some of whom I know from, used to know from hanging out in trans New York City and some I've never met. But it's just, that just felt like, oh, yeah, there are ways that you can craft style of interaction, even though, you know, what's really happening is that our attention is being monetized. As I said in, in the other book, in um, Capital is Dead, capitalism is all about expropriating our labor. This new ruling class, whatever it is, expropriates our communism, you know, like our, our desire to share and be with others. And to de-individuate is the very thing that these platforms monetize and extract value from. But it definitely made a huge difference. There's a whole generation of trans people who exist because of the internet. And we're able to figure things out much more quickly. Um, maybe got sidetracked into algorithmically generated conflicts because all of these platforms function much better on noise than they do on information. So you get caught up in generating the noise, which is the thing that I keep trying to exclude from my feed. People who want to argue about who's really trans or, you know, like, can you be a lesbian, bisexual or whatever, as if the categories were the things that mattered more than the experience. Uh, and occasionally cate categories matter, right? I, there are things about language to pay attention to. But to get caught up in that obsessively is is a thing that the algorithm itself produces and is much less interesting. That's the thing that manufactures subjectivity now. So we're kind of products of it. I've been doing social media for 30 years. All these patterns existed 30 years ago. We had the same problems and we're trying to work around them in various ways. And more successfully, frankly, because it wasn't yet a business. This thing's only really a business people figure out how to extract value from in the last 15 of those years. Before that was much more playful and it really was a space that had an avant-garde. Whereas now you're just kind of like trying to exist, you know, in a way that makes your life possible. So yeah, I'm somebody from the broadcast era and the early part of the book is all about how pop stars used to be polyvalent and were like signaling to all these different audiences at once because you need all of them to mass produce the record to sell or the TV show or the film. So Bowie, you know, when Bowie died, all these super straight people who were acquaintances of mine were really sad about it. And I'm like, wait, I thought Bowie was for us. And it's like, no, he had this mass audience because he could signal to these different constituencies all at the same time without them conflicting. Now you don't so much have to do, it, do that. You know, there's levels of entertainment culture that are much, much more niche and where particularly direct forms of signaling are in fact the, the market that you're in, including us, right? This is badged as a book by for and about trans people. I hope other people read it too, but, you know, it's kind of there. You can't miss it. It's for us. And that leads me on to two final questions about wider politics. And I'll start with the one about trans people. You know, in a recent interview with Sanya Grozdanich, you talked about how scapegoating trans women is a whole industry at the moment. And speaking in a country where you can't throw a stone without hitting like a transphobic centrist columnist. I would very much agree with that. We seem to be pouring as much energy into that as we did into the whole of our industrial revolution. Quite frankly, it's embarrassing. What do you think trans people can do to combat this, you know, in the forms we use for our creative work and where we publish? 
these things are always like a double bind and you're kind of up against the structure of how media works because there's a way in which it's usually good policy to not engage with people who don't recognize your humanity. The whole basis of the concept of the public sphere is mutual recognition, right? Everyone who's allowed to participate in it recognizes the others as being humans with cognitive faculties that are worthy of attention. But the public sphere always excludes somebody and is maybe always constituted by those acts of exclusion. So, of course, historically, it excluded anybody who wasn't a white guy, right, was excluded. Uh, even up through, you know, my area, you could get excluded because you were too crazy or because you were gay. Like, there's all reasons why, yeah, and those categories are treated as the same. So, yeah, there's this desire to not recognize trans people as fully human. And you can't really engage with that in some ways. What are the ways, though, that you can engage with the audience that it's trying to address? Like, I think that's sort of more important. You know, and there's another thing I have to exclude from trans Twitter all the time is people want to argue with the fucking turfs on Twitter. And it's like, don't engage with people who are not recognizing you, your humanity. You're kind of even, you know, feeding into that and giving them air. But how do you address the people that transphobes are trying to address is, I think, a whole different thing. And there the debate is about, on the one hand, we really do need representatives who are respectable, who are well-dressed and well-groomed and only talk about public things in public. It's really useful to have those kinds of representatives. The problem with that is nobody recognizes that as the full range of human experience. So there's a way in which it's discountable as a bit of a front because it sort of is. So mad respect to the Janet Mox and Laverne Coxes of the world for occupying that position because that's part of it. It's just not the full solution in a way. So I think you sort of have to cop to, like, we're as messy and weird and have deeply strange sexualities, the same as cis people do. So it's like claiming the right to have that space as well. Like here's all of our disaster, as well as the fact that we function as well as everybody else does in the world, if you will let us, if you will let us to function in the world. Like, I trust you. You know, trust me on this. We'll, we'll be fine. So, so I think those are the the challenges of messaging. And, and I do have to say, like, thank you for taking on that work in UK media, like just repeatedly trying to be present as a voice that's reasonable and showing that we're people, <laughs> but directing that to an audience that, you know, is, hasn't quite figured that out. This hasn't is unconsciously absorbing and reproducing transphobia who can be talked out of it rather than trying to address people who for whom... There's a whole, as you say, a whole career in making us the scapegoat. Because the problem is you probably do really need to exclude somebody to have a public sphere. Like that's the double bind of it. But to me, it's like only if you attack the ruling class and its representatives. Like that seems to me to be media ethics 101 is don't be attacking each other. Like who are the actual paid stooges of the ruling order? Uh, and even those are not worth really a lot of attention. Uh, let's attack the ruling class that brought us to disaster. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And that leads me on to my final question, which is more to do with wider socialist politics. We're recording on the 9th of April, which is the day after the Bernie Sanders campaign for the 
Democratic nomination in the forthcoming presidential election ended. I mean, the campaign, I think, had been on life support for the last month or so. It was looking increasingly unlikely that he would be able to get the nomination amid the COVID-19 crisis. I think Sanders also didn't want people to be going out and voting uh, and so drew the campaign to a close, which I know has already prompted a celebratory Zoom call from people around Hillary Clinton. But, you know, this is obviously the end of a political project that has been attempted at the same time in the UK and the US, which has been pulling together a coalition of older socialists and liberal leftists and younger people affected very badly by austerity, as well as lots of people from ethnic minorities, LGBT people, uh, and obviously the crushing defeat of Jeremy Corbyn's Labour in the UK and the recent replacement of him by sensible Keir Starmer and the Democratic establishment ensuring that Joe Biden got the nomination for the Democratic contest. Uh, It feels like the end of that project and the severing of a final link with the generation formed by the struggles of 1968 and the 1970s. You know, I often think about this line from the German expressionist playwright Ernst Toller, who says that we communists are dead men on leave. And that's possibly unduly pessimistic, but it does resonate with me an awful lot. And certainly, you know, the likes of you and I have to live with the experience of constantly being defeated and maybe even experiencing the same defeats twice. So I wanted to ask like, how you feel about this and again, whether writing is something that can like mitigate those emotions. I mean, I was trained by people who had lived through the devastating disasters of 1956 and 1968. It took twice to kind of destroy, you know, international communism. And and Sino-Soviet split, too. They were three disasters in a row, and it was definitely all over by 68. The alternative model of revolution fails in 68 as well. Somewhat more complicated story with anti-colonial movements in that era. It was a very mixed record of, you know, in the 60s and 70s of trying to throw colonialism rather than capitalism or capitalism in its colonial guise. Yeah, I was sort of trained by people who used to defeat and have that sort of Samuel Beckett, I can't go on, I'll go on approach to it. And you kind of knew who a comrade was because they didn't have any optimism at all, really. There was a kind of theological part of it that strangely remained intact, and I don't have, but I do sort of respect. But it does make me a little emotionally disconnected to the investment of hope that happened around Corbyn and Sanders. I did I did put my clear shoulder to the wheel for um, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, who now represents me. Like I live in the 14th Congressional. So I was like, more than happy to go and do footwork. I just can't feel all that invested because they're kind of like holding patterns to try to forestall the worst. I mean, I've been saying for a long time that sort of the popular front anti-fascist politics is the one to draw on because that's how bad it is. It's, it's kind of been the early 30s for the last 20 years of, of trying to sort of like hold that line. So, yeah, I can't get that uh, invested. It's just absolutely essential to keep doing it even if you don't believe in it, yeah? And there's a sense in which, and, and you know, it's, it's a very broad brush stroke, but both Corbyn and uh, Sanders were... You know, sort of modest proposals for managed decline for former empires, neither of which has really like given up you know, sort of world historical roles that they don't really have anymore. And they were coming to terms with the fact that you've basically exhausted the, the human and material infrastructure of projecting power to the point where that power can't even be projected. There's a way in which these were, uh, in part, not even all that progressive a project. 
like they're kind of moderate social democratic projects. Yeah. Uh, and interestingly, interestingly, look back to New Deal here, or I think post-war reconstruction in the case of Portland. Yeah, it's kind of like looking as like, oh my God, this place is as devastated as it was by the war. We have to rebuild people, or there's one even be at Britain. But the ruling class is like, no, I don't think we really need to do that. We can get stuff made elsewhere. You know, there's educated populations who can do the actual like think work elsewhere. Like, fuck you all. Um, let's just loot the state and collect the rent. Like, that's the kind of ruling class we've got. It's no accident no state talks about history anymore, with the possible exception of the People's Republic of China. Seems to have a sense of historical destiny. Not necessarily in a good way. I'm not endorsing that in any tanky kind of note. I'm just, just recognizing, oh, that's the only state left where its ruling class thinks in historical terms. Everybody else is just out for what they can get right now. I kind of feel a little disconnected from the enthusiasm for progressive politics that younger generations have, or I really welcome it. And I'm so not interested in the sort of sectarianism of it because all of these strategies have failed. Like there's a whole thing going on now. Well, obviously it was a mistake to have invested in electoral politics. Like let's all, let's like, oh, come on. You know, like none of these strategies have, have worked. Taking to the streets has not worked. Taking to the ballot box has not worked. So it's like, you know, let's be ecumenical about these various tendencies and push on all of them. And quite frankly, the only people who seem to have it together in New York at the moment are anarchists. The whole mutual aid thing has really taken off and people are like, we're fucking on our own. Uh, let's do a spreadsheet and we'll go around on bicycles and deliver shit to people. And it's like, thank you. <laughs> That's actually working. Like, that will probably help some people. Yeah, it's bad. But, you know, can't go on, I'll go on. Well, that feels like a good place to stop, paradoxically. <laughs> Mackenzie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Juliet. A pleasure. That's the end of another Sweet 212 session. We have more coming up soon with Lars Ayer, Joanna Walsh, Abba Sahedi and others. You can find us on Twitter at Sweet underscore 212. Find us on SoundCloud at Sweet dash 212. Subscribe to our Patreon at Sweet 212. Thank you for listening. Take care and talk to you soon. Goodbye.